Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about belief and trust and due process. But before we jump into that conversation, I want to talk to you a little bit about PeaceWorks University. Now, I know every week I come back with a reminder that if you are enjoying the PeaceWorks podcast, if it's helpful to you, then your best next step is PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community designed specifically to help you with resources for responding to domestic abuse from a gospel-centered perspective. You can learn more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. All right, let's jump into today's topic today. You know, at the time of this recording, and it's June 21st, we've just come off of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, this particular convention was relatively heated, and while I'm not a Southern Baptist, I, uh, I am a ordained with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and I pastor in uh, within the West Virginia Baptist Convention as kind of a non-alliance assignment, uh, I do have an affinity uh, for folks in the SBC, a lot of friends over there, and, and in particular, uh, an interest due to my involvement in the Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused curriculum. It was just one of those things that uh, has a vested interest. And so I tuned in uh, to the convention when I could uh, last week, and there were several uh, points of contention. But the one that really um, has the most to do with our conversation was the Southern Baptist continual discussion about how they will respond to sexual abuse. Now, again, sexual abuse falls within our realm. We talk primarily about domestic abuse, which certainly includes sexual abuse. Uh, but the SBC seems to be focused on sexual abuse uh, from positions of power, such as ministers abusing their power and sexually assaulting or sexually assaulting minors uh, or rapacious behavior, and all of which is a worthy um, worthy goal to end. Uh, so I do think it is important for the evangelical community what the Southern Baptist does. And uh, some encouraging things happened last week, including the delegates uh, overruling the executive committee by a two-thirds vote to create a task force to add layers of accountability in this uh, upcoming guidepost investigation, which is their uh, first third-party investigation regarding claims of sexual abuse. So in many ways, there were many, many victories at the SBC convention for uh, victims and survivors. However, one thing that I continued to learn or um, was substantiated was there are many within the evangelical community, not just the Southern Baptists, but of course they were in the spotlight, who continue to push back on those of us who are in the work, and not to say that we should not be challenged. I think to, to say that any of us who are in the work, whether we're advocates or interventionists or counselors or pastors or teachers who are involved directly 
in abuse work. I don't think any of us would would say we don't welcome feedback. Feedback's an important part and critique is an important part of the process because we want to learn and grow. But there is there are a few aspects of pushback that keep coming to the forefront that do not seem to be our answers do not seem to be sufficient. So I want to try to address at least one of them. One of the points of contention that I interacted with a little bit last week, I saw coming back up among some brothers and sisters who I think um, if if they are willing to listen, there may be a very simple explanation uh, for the disconnect. And that con- that has to do with the aspect of believing. You know, I hear that quite a bit. It's like, why, why do you guys keep calling us to believe the victim? If you read through the Church Cares material, these people are all the time calling us to believe the victim. But don't we live in a country where you're innocent until proven guilty? There seems to be a very large concern that an individual will be falsely accused. Now, I've dealt with false accusations on the podcast in the past, and I'm not going to take the time to jump into the discussion on false accusations. But there seems to be a real concern to make sure that um, both sides are heard, that due process is done. And I want to agree that due process needs to be done. Here's my concern, though. The reason why I call leaders to believe disclosures of abuse is not because I want to get rid of due process. It's because I want to guarantee due process. You see, believing the victim is not an elimination of due process. It's a call for due process. It's what initiates due process. Let me try to set it up with just an example. An individual comes to the church and they disclose, let's just say, sexual abuse. So consider the fact that you are more than likely a young person, more than likely a young lady at this point, uh, if, you, if you're consistent with, uh, with what the statistics are telling us, and you've been sexually assaulted, let's say, by a leader in your church. Now, I just want you to pause for a minute and think about the ramifications of that. You're young ladies, let's say you're 16, 17, 18 years old. You have been um, coerced and sexually manipulated or assaulted by a 40-year-old man or a 30-year-old man or a 28-year-old man in, in your church who's in a position of leadership. Perhaps like we have been learning Uh, As more details have come out of leaders who have predatory behavior like this, that this leader has used threats such as threats of hell or displeasing God, or perhaps they've used uh, flattering language of, you know, God's pleasure in this or that God wants you to do this. And the manipulation and the coercion has been um, well-crafted and persuasive and this individual's found themselves in a trap, in a, in a spider web of manipulation, coercion, and control. And they're finally to a place where they need help. They can't escape the, the power and the pressure. Um, the assaults have continued. 
and none of the tactics that they have tried to end the assaults have worked. They have persisted, and so they come to you for help. Perhaps it's been years since the assault. Maybe they've tried to remove themselves from it, to put it out of their mind, to disassociate, if you will, and they're falling and buckling under the pressure of their own mind, their own pain, their own shame. And they're coming to you for help, one person as a pastoral leader who can actually, through the power and the provision of the gospel, provide real hope and healing for the ways in which they've been sinned against. Calling the abuser to account, right, and providing care and hope for the shame that is not theirs. The shame they're experiencing that is not from their own sin, but from the sin of another. But instead, instead of believing what we're hearing and initiating a response to care, we put them on hold so that we can investigate to see who's telling the truth. So just imagine you're a young lady who has developed the the courage, who has finally decided to disclose this horrible reality in her life, and she comes to you for help. And rather than, right, understanding the immense pain and suffering and turmoil and distress that she's under, and the, the amount of courage that it takes to come and seek your help, you say, well, we need to get to the bottom of this. You begin to investigate and ask her questions to possibly convince her that she's exaggerating or that she was partly to blame or that she was uh, at, at least some fault. This is what we're talking about, gang. No one is asking us to believe every word that comes out of every person who gives any disclosure. We're not talking about um, getting pitchforks and torches and going to a perpetrator's house and exacting justice in that moment. None of us have that kind of authority. We're talking about being respectful and loving and caring enough to listen well to somebody who has through uh, an immense amount of courage and conviction and possibly pain and suffering that's been compounding to listen as they come to you with a disclosure and care enough to believe them. Now, sometimes when I say the word believe, some people in our world, in the church world, think I mean hook, line, and sinker, that it means everything that they're saying and that there's never going to be any due process and that the victim or the survivor is the ultimate authority. And what that tells me is that those individuals have probably never sat in a room with a victim or a survivor. And if they have, and if they have, more than likely, they've listened more to the emotion of their pain than the deep needs of their pain. Did you hear that? They listen more to the emotion of their pain. Oh, this person's angry. This person's out of control. This person's hard to wrangle in. This person doesn't make a lot of sense. Rather than the need of their pain, this person's been hurt deeply. This person has been sinned against in grievous ways. This person needs help. So pastors, I will continue to call us as leaders to believe victims 
And no, that does not eliminate due process. It initiates it. And let me continue with this thought. The idea that believing a victim eliminates due process um, actually is the, the converse of what's happening. So, so consider, again, you're a young lady, you've come for help, and your pastor has done as I previously illustrated. He has said, well, we've got to get to the bottom of this. We've got to find out. We've got to get his side of the story. Is that how any... Is that how any due process works? Is that what literally happens? Well, we got to get to the bottom of this. No, that's, that's not where it starts. It starts with belief. The whole reason we investigate is because we believe. The whole reason why we move forward is because we believe. Due process is a result of belief. Due process is not a result of doubt. The results of doubt are heightened conflict. The results of doubt are continued suspicion. The results of doubt are this fuzzy um, redefining of reality. Here's what I mean by that. If I doubt in cases of abuse, then my focus is on reconciliation, right? Not on restoration. And those those are different things. I want to see people restored to God first and then reconciliation to others. But when I redefine the terms that this is a mere conflict, that this is a misunderstanding, that this is a mutual problem, then restoration takes a backseat to reconciliation. What I mean by that is if I don't take the weight of sin and the weight of the accusation and I don't believe what I'm hearing, I could inadvertently put people in harm's way because I'm uncomfortable believing this person in front of me. Due process is a result of believing a disclosure. It's not the antithesis. And I'll, I'll go one step further. And this is where I really get concerned. Because there are hashtags and movements and pithy little statements and bumper sticker statements that are all out there. Okay, I know they're out there. And one of them right now is, I believe her or I believe women. And I have no problems with that. But many folks in the church community will push back at me. And here's the thing, guys. I wonder sometimes if that's the real problem. If the real heart of the matter is we don't want to believe women, not because we don't want to avoid due process or we don't want to believe false accusations, but because we don't want to believe women. I think we need to pause and really think If the shoe was on the other foot, if her husband had come to me claiming that a church member stole money from them with the evidence, clear indications that they had been violated, would we say, no, I don't believe you? I really need to take some time with this. Or would we initiate due process? Sometimes I wonder. Now, I'm not saying that Everyone is a misogynist, right? If, if everyone's a misogynist, then no one is a misogynist, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but sometimes I wonder if the real problem is not believing. But I wonder if the real problem is we don't want to believe women. And, you know, guys, a few years ago, I, I would not have said that. 
on a podcast, on a video, in an interview, I think I would have thought the best. But my experiences and interactions and attempts to have these type of conversations have led me to believe that there are some folks in our camp, folks in our churches, leaders, who have a real problem with women. And I, I think that needs to be said. It needs to be said loud. That needs to be confronted. And it needs to be addressed. So does believing victims eliminate due process? I don't think so. I think believing victims is key to due process. Sometimes uh, I'll hear people push back about false accusations. And again, you can go back and listen to a previous episode uh, where I talked about this. And you know the thing about false accusations is not only are they rare, um, they, they have a hard time standing up to scrutiny. The classic example that people will tell me is uh, the Duke lacrosse team. And certainly those young men had an aspect of their life that were affected for a short period of time. But let's remember, it was a short period of time because they were exonerated, were they not? When due process was carried out in the system, we're not even talking about in the church, we're talking about in the court system, which takes forever to do things. But when due process was um, was engaged, they were found to not be guilty. Isn't that what we want? For false accusations to end with good resolutions? However, in the church world, we disengage from the process by turning it into something completely different. Individual comes, discloses abuse. Rather than engaging in due process, we get into this all-or-nothing thinking. You ever gone there? All-or-nothing thinking is black and white. It's really this or that. And there seems to be this assumption among some in the church world that if I receive a disclosure of abuse, I either have to enact punishment immediately on the abuser, condemning them, right? Or I have to investigate. I have to make sure. And no one's asking you. In fact, I don't think anyone at the moment of disclosure now. Now, granted, if you're an entity or a pastor or a leader and you've ignored abuse for years, in particular a case of abuse for years, yes, some may call you for immediate justice, all right? But I think in the moment of receiving a disclosure, I don't know of anyone who is saying, you have to act now and you have to act in very harsh ways. But that seems to be the, the thought process. So I can't punish this guy because I don't know. But you do know. You've been told. So act. It doesn't have to be swift. It doesn't have to be the, the swing of an axe. It doesn't have to be the swing of a sword. But act. And the best way to act, and you can hear more about this in past podcasts as well, but the best way to act is to ask the person in front of you, what would you like me to do next? How can I help you? What are some ways that I can serve you? I'm so sorry this happened to you. How can I love you? Not how can I fix it? How can I make it right? How, how can I make sure you're telling me the truth? No, just 
when we believe victims, we open the door for due process. We open the door for hope. When we deny them that, we open the door to chaos, giving the abusive partner a voice that we do not allow the victim to have. Here's my encouragement. Friends, pastors, leaders, be empowering. Give victims a voice. Allow them to to comfortably share as best they can what they're experiencing. Stand with victims. Believe them. And I think you'll be surprised at how effective that is at initiating, maintaining, sustaining, and achieving due process. Thank you guys for listening to the PeaceWorks podcast. I hope that's helpful. Uh, We will be back again next week. And until then, until next time, God bless.